Hello everyone, welcome back to the uh, fifth episode of Trademark uh, Podcast. Um, we're here to offer some reflections on the elections. Um, we had planned to do uh, a, a podcast on sectarianism, but we've had some demands from from fans out there. A one, uh, a one fan. Yeah, one <laughs> fan in particular. So this is for Clem, shout out. Um, yeah, we've had a, a period of elections, local elections and European elections right across um, Ireland, uh, North and South, um, across GB and across Europe. So we're just going to have a rambling discussion on the fallout from these uh, elections. I have with me um, our usual uh, participants, Dr. Sean Byers, eminent historian. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> One book. Yeah. One book he's got, that's it. Many books are you? Huh? One. Uh, one and one in the can. One in the can, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and we have, of course, our usual um, Joker of the pack, uh, on Dr. Stefan Arnulloin. Oh, for fuck's sake. Arnulloin. <laughs> All right, sorry, sorry, sorry. Cut. No, um, <laughs> Take <Cuts>. two. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk about the, uh, the local elections first in the north. Um, are there any... Uh, key things that jump out at you Sean when you think back on it um, well obviously Sinn Féin and the DUP will be slightly disappointed at how they've done um, I'm sure both of them were hoping for if not anticipating some gains but they've uh, held their own really um, uh, for the unions, uh, Ulster Unionist Party UUP um, I think that's the big story. The UUP's virtually collapsed. Um, it's collapsed to the left and to the right, where hardline unionists have gone to the DUP, and where liberal, secular, Romani unionists have gone with the Alliance Party and the Green Party. Um, the SDLP has continued uh, uh, on its long-term decline. Hurrah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I'm sure none of us will lose any sleep over, um, and uh, overall, I suppose the big story is what some have said: the the gains for the others, uh, which is the Green Party, um, Alliance, and uh, left wing parties like People for Profit, who picked up uh, two additional seats in Belfast and uh, two additional seats in. Derry, giving them five uh, council seats uh, overall, um, which indicates that their anti-austerity, anti-welfare reform message was was being heard. Yeah, there's other the other story that was going to come out but didn't really materialise was um, Padre Topin's little um, group in Seantu and what they're up to. I think they got a seat in Derry, but they did pick up votes here and there, and they picked up quite a few votes in my local constituency. Sinn Féin lost a seat. That they were expecting to get because I think four or five hundred votes went to a local and two candidate who, by the way, didn't do any canvassing and hardly had any posters up. So it was that anti-choice branch, I think, of the traditional Sinn Féin vote kind of of, of manoeuvred or drifted over to and two. Whether and two survives and goes anywhere after this, I doubt it. Obviously, we hope it doesn't. We hope it, you know, I think dies to, a death fairly soon. To some extent, you're seeing a consolidation of the two main parties. Um, but there's also a fragmentation in all sorts of directions, in the directions of liberal unionism towards the Greens, towards um, 
the socialist elements, people for profit in particular, um, and then independent Republicans, um, uh, anti-austerity Republicans and the likes of Fermanagh, some of the lads that we would know, um, in Derry um, and in other places. There's also another dynamic, of course, which is um, a younger youth folk coming through, and the youth folk seems to be more liberal, socially liberal, um, and that social liberal vote is looking for different answers necessarily than traditional parties. But that socially liberal vote, some of those young pundits are also quite economically liberal. They're not necessarily left-wing, so that's an interesting dynamic where their votes are going to go over the next five and ten years. There's no doubt that that, that other, there's a lot of debate about the other, you know, the third political option in the north mm. now is, is, is but, it, but it's a very fractured other I mean I don't see it as a, as a it's not even a very useful descriptor to be honest with you because no. it's full of left republicans, communists <clears throat> greens, greens that are kind of EU critical, greens that are kind of neoliberal it's full of liberal unionists, it's full of alliance people, it's full of unionists with a small use it's a real diverse group to be called like a, given its own descriptor but as Sean said at least it opens up some sort of ground for different kinds of political discussions over the future of this place the future of Ireland, Britain and indeed Europe so you know it's, it's kind of a healthy opening up of political debate there maybe um, What about the, the, the DUP, we haven't talked about them and I'm quite surprised I don't know why I should be, actually I should know better, that the DUP has, doesn't seem to have suffered any impact from a succession of corruption scandals that are hanging about and you know, we're still waiting on the RHI but Red Sky and the dirty money from the um, um, wealthy donors and all that. What's going on there? Or is that just the nature of this sectarian statelet? Well, where are those DUP voters going to go is the issue. I mean, you know, unionism, and particularly what we call, I don't know if you call it hardline unionism, it, it constantly paints itself into a corner. Every time there's a kind of crisis politically, kind of, it's, it did it in Durham Cree, remember? They said, we're, we're never going to leave here, and they lost that one. So they constantly paint themselves into a little corner. And they're doing that, it's almost like a political reflection of the of the realities of Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, if you like, the statelet itself is a retraction of British colonialism and British imperialism to the northeast corner of this island. So it's painted itself literally into its own little geographical corner. The DUP does the same politically all of the time. So it's no surprise to me that they paint themselves into a corner and then hope someone's going to dig them out of it. And that that but the, the corner they paint themselves into just gets smaller and smaller all the time. And that's that's their future. The DUP is that's become. Um much broader church, more diverse party uh, in terms of attitudes, in terms of demographics and and so on like um, and what that means is that, and you know at the same time unionism the face of unionism is changing in terms of um, unionism's base, its attitudes uh, on on social issues, its attitudes towards the European Union um, towards you know the possibility of United Ireland even. Um, all of those things it's changing which means that the DUP needs <laughs> needs to modernise um, but as Stevie said the choices that the leadership is making and the dominance of a right wing uh, cabal within uh, the DUP means that it's unable to modernise um, and that's that's left it in the situation that it's in um, Believe it or not, other... when, you, when you look back at it, I mean, Peter Robinson now looks like a modernising leader. Mm. Compa- <laughs> but compared to because they've taken mm. another step back, but what you're really looking for within unionism is that at some point in the next 10 years, there will be a modernising leader will emerge, a young person who's more liberal, who's not 
kind of mm. sectarian in the same way that some of the who's, who's socially liberal but also economically liberal. So they're going to be a kind of non-sectarian neoliberal type. But that that person will lead them in a different direction, and that direction is only heading one way, and that's that's kind of the end, the end of the state, I suppose. Uh, there's a number of unionist commentators um, just to turn to the UUP, um, like Alex Kane, for example, have been saying for some time that the UUP needs to carve out a distinct um, identity from the DUP um, on questions such as the European Union, on social issues, and uh, on economic issues even. Um, in order to to safeguard its, its existence and in order to win over some of those younger, more secular, uh, liberal uh, Protestants that wouldn't necessarily lend their support to the DUP. The UUP have just failed to do that under successive leaders. What was that um, quote the other day from a newsletter editor? He says he was talking to a senior unionist politician. says, not only can we not attract Catholics to vote for us, we can't even attract unionists to vote for us. Mm-hmm. So that's the end of them. Because that liberal unionist shtick that they kind of were going for the last couple of years, well, the Alliance have just taken that. And I don't think it's going to go back it's to too, the UUP. It's too late, it's too late for the UUP to, to undertake that sort mm-hmm. of um, shift that it needed to take some time ago. Um, I think what you'll continue to see is more hardline unionists um, moving over to the DUP, um, whilst the more liberal, secular, um, progressive unionists um, moving in do the direction not, of the Alliance um, Party. Do we not raid off political parties at our peril? There's been many a sort of comeback, you know, in recent elections right across Britain and Ireland. Well, a lot of those political parties though rely upon demographics as well. And the SDLP vote, people said, well, ten years ago, people said that's the end of that party. They attracted a few young people in the one end, but basically it's the older people getting older and older who just give their vote to that party traditionally. The UUP will be no different. They'll hang on with grim death for another ten or fifteen years until the people who vote for them literally die off. And that's, I think that's what you're seeing is a gen- intergenerational change. Mm. And so that that decline is not going to be reversed. Okay, let's talk about uh, the European elections in the north uh, first. We've got three female um, MEPs. Uh, I suppose that's one sign of progression. Um, but Martina Anderson was elected with a significantly lower um, vote, um, and you know uh, Naomi Long is riding that crest of the liberal wave that seems to be gripping uh, Britain and Ireland as a whole. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the the big outcome from the European election is uh, the sort of coming together and the the advance of uh, pro-EU candidates, pro-Remain candidates. I think that's the big message that that, that camp, um, that pro-EU axis and alliance that, that has come together, including Sinn Féin and the Alliance Party, the Green Party, um, and of course, I mean those those two remain MEPs would normally, of course, go to Europe and be completely lost amongst the seven hundred and fifty-one MEPs that are shouting at each other across that um, that hall. But because of the backstop, because of the Irish border issue or the British border in Ireland issue, um, they will they will be listened to, I suppose, at some level in terms of those negotiations, in terms of what Europe's how Europe's going to respond to any kind of future Tory leader and this supposed renegotiations which aren't even going to happen so so in that sense they'll have a voice and they'll be listened to and it's useful I suppose I think the Alliance Party have done well like Naomi Long's done well to to build up that profile for herself and to provide an option for um, 
for Liberals, um, for Remainers, uh, including Remainer uh, Unionists. So she's done a good job of that. Done a um, particularly good job considering uh, that the message was kind of vacuous and empty. Yes, we can do it for yourself. Rise up, rise up, and <laughs> moving beyond. Just kind of empty, vacuous words mm. on on slogans. Considering they didn't say anything, they've done really well. Yeah. But that seems to be modern politics. You know what I mean? Branding, messaging, no actual policies. Yeah. Though. Well, it was interesting. A few years ago, we were talking about the potential for a Corbyn-led Labour Party to to have to provide that space for discontented um, unionist voters in the north of Ireland if they didn't grasp that particular chance in it. Think that moment is has sealed past. Well, yeah, I mean, Labour Party in Britain don't want to have a party here that stands in election. It's quite clear that they've been against that, and that even under Blair, they didn't really want to go there. And under Corbyn and McDonnell, who are quite Republican in their outlook, it's certainly not going to happen. I don't think so. Yeah, that Liberal Unionist vote has found whether it's a permanent or temporary home. I don't know, um, but it's but it's also found it in the Green Party as well. The Green you can't just discount. I don't know. Clare didn't do overly well in the Europeans, about twelve, thirteen thousand votes or something. But they did well in the European elections as well, as Sean said. So. They're picking up a lot of young, liberal, secular, progressive, what would have been formerly unionist votes as well, and, and building that. So that's a, that's a that's a, again politics open, a space opening up there for them as well. So. I suppose just just on that, um, one of the missing elements can persistently uh, missing sort of elements uh, is a political voice for uh, working class Protestants, working class unionist community. Mm. Um, that's been completely absent. Um, Julianne Cole lost, lost her seat. Lost her seat, yeah. yeah. And that was a progressive voice in the city council there, so they didn't do very well at all. And it almost and seems like it's going to disappear as a, as you say, as a political vehicle for working class Protestants. Yeah. And again, that's that's the outcome of the 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 failure to put enough clear water between working class unionism and the unionism of of the DUP and the UUP. Um, and I think any sort of progressive unionist formation that comes forward um, will need to learn the lessons of that. Um, voter turnout was, and particularly working class voter turnout, was a feature of both sides of the border. If we move to um, the Republic of Ireland, um, what do you what do you see as the big trends there? Uh, well, obviously the same kind of similar trends all across Europe happened in the South. The green surge was was the main feature of the election, I suppose, but there was also um, I wouldn't say the collapse of a left vote, but they didn't do very well in terms of left. I mean, Sinn Féin lost what seventy seats, and I think the people before profit lost how many seats did they lose? Um, the, the people before profit and uh, solidarity lost. I think a bit seventeen, 17 seats, so they, more so than they, half. So they didn't do well at all. I know, but I mean, uh, the Sock Dems picked up I don't know near twenty seats from nowhere from a standing start. Um, Greens picked up over twenty local council seats. So. It, that kind of centrist, liberal, pro-European um, vote seemed to have done well. Um, in terms of working-class areas, the, port, the turnout was very poor. What was it in Finglas, you told me, Sean? 14%. 14% turnout. Yeah. And the story for Sinn Féin, Matt Carty was very good the other day, I have to say. He was very honest because he was asked, what, what happened to your vote? Why, what? And he, he didn't have any answers. He said, I'm not quite sure. So all the left parties are going to have to do some serious thinking and analysis over the next while about what happened to that vote. That 2014 anti-austerity surge it's clearly dissipated. You know, the tide's come in and now it's going out again on that one. Um, and they'll have to come up with a different kind of messaging and communication to those communities. Why would they bother voting for these parties that aren't going to be in government? That's that's often the biggest issue. What's the point, you know? So, Yeah, what about um, uh, Claire Daly's uh, victory? Uh, she's off to Europe now, but I suppose local politics or national politics is 
has lost out as a result. Um, is that you know some people are suggesting that Claire Daly's win um, is nothing to be celebrated? Well, there was two things I read about. One was they were blaming Claire for Lynn Boylan not getting in, and I know there's an argument there for splitting the left vote. But in that particular constituency for the MEP, Sinn Fein didn't get their vote out. I think was mm. the other issue. That that was that's their biggest worry as a party. Yes, if Claire hadn't stood, Lynn would clearly have got in. But nonetheless, Sinn Féin didn't get their vote out as well as that. So it's a two-sided story. Sinn Féin had got their vote out and the two of them would have liked to get in. Yeah, exactly. Um, in terms of Claire going to Europe, well, you're asking the wrong man. I mean, you know, they're going to a, they're going to a European Parliament with no legislative powers, no budgetary powers, no no power to ne- negotiate. So, you know, um, a lot of shouting, a lot of, you know, and what else, and talking, but no power. Um, I think that maybe... It's basically a big lobbying group, isn't it, really? The European Parliament lobbies capital to be nice to us. Claire Daly and the Commission decides whether it will or won't. That's what's going on there. Claire Daly and Mick may may think that the European Parliament offer them a bigger platform, a bigger profile to raise their particular issues, the issues that they're interested in and that their constituents are interested in, um, and to to address some of the bigger questions of the day in the way that Lim Boylan was able to do in the European Parliament to to a limited extent or as as best as, as anyone, any one MEP would have been able to do. Um but I can't really necessarily understand the logic of, of taking yourself out of the door and, and going into that um big lot a big loss for national politics, big loss for that independence for change kind of loose grouping as well. Um a big loss in the Doyle. She great speaker, made some fantastic speeches, great interventions, so whether she can repeat that at a European level whether she have the same impact as Sean said, I don't know, but I know I'd rather she had stayed in, in the yeah. door. I think. I mean, the other big story from European elections down south, apart from the Greens, which we can get on to, is Fina Gael. I mean, they, they, they won a seat down in the south. The, mm. the, the Tamagotchi woman, the, the Rosa Tralee, won a seat, for fuck's sake. I mean, with no policies, nothing to say, a couple of crappy videos, yeah. um, and then she gets in into Europe now. So uh, Fina Gael done well. But they, their message was good and strong, and they, they yeah. you know, what, they sold what, what it What is well. it about... Um, Parties like Sinn Féin that were renowned for the machine, their ability to get the vote out, their ability to knock on doors. And we know that there was a number of, of high-profile independents that had good teams of people that were, were taking soundings on the doorsteps and very confident of, of maybe getting council seats. Um, what, what, what's the lesson to be learned from that? You'd have to speak to people who are experts on political messaging, but I think that's got something to do with it. Is the idea of the, the message or the brand of, of a party or of an independent candidate, and people respond to that, to the branding of politics nowadays and the messaging. And a lot, of, I think Sinn Fein and some of the left parties, they got their message wrong. It was it was either irrelevant, it was too broad to have any use to anybody, and they didn't get it out there. People didn't know what they were voting for. I think that was that's part of the issue there. And that that anti austerity message, well, it's it's you know austerity is ten years old now, and we've moved we haven't moved beyond austerity. It's still been implemented but nonetheless the mainstream media have convinced enough people that we're now moved beyond austerity and we're back into so-called growth so the message has to change from left-wing parties you can't just have an anti-message you have to have a perhaps I don't know, a more hopeful message or a more and that's what the green surge was based on idea yes there's a recognition that the planet's fucking in trouble there's also kind of a hopeful thing let's vote for something positive let's vote for positive change and let's vote for our planet and vote for our you know environment so it's kind of a positive thing to vote for so maybe that's what the left's got to listen to, is um, messages of hope and change. You know? I think uh, it'll be a hugely disappointing for Sinn Féin, the, that result. Um, and it's clear that um, 
for one reason or another they've lost touch or lost yeah lost touch with their base um they obviously haven't got it out in places like Dublin, Cork, uh, Galway, Limerick. The urban centres that are supposed to provide the mm. sort of the foundation for for their their growth uh, and and their projection towards uh, a party of, of, of government. Um, and there are probably some local reasons for that, uh, individual local reasons in those locations for that. But overall, it seems to be that that they failed to. Um, they've had, a lot, of, but they've had a lot of conflict as well internally mm. in terms of mm. councillors leaving mid-term and accusations of bullying I don't know how many of them there is but there was enough of them to be every couple of months there seemed to be a story about how Sinn Féin's internal culture wasn't very healthy or wasn't working very well so that might have had an impact as well in terms of local mm. election results I think one of the big failures that um, Sinn Féin have made um, in recent years is that rather than taking that sort of anti-austerity anger that we've seen at the height of the Right to Water campaign between about 2014 and, and 16, and transforming that into uh, something hopeful, not only something hopeful, but a, a, a more transformative sort of movement, um, that they've almost taken their base for granted and moved in the direction of trying to win over uh, the middle class vote. Uh, to try to become that sort of catch-all nationalist party, and I think I mean, that's their, poli- it's, their, it's their, their policies on housing, for instance, were as a classic example of that. You know, kind of trying to hedge their bets and have a kind of more centrist approach to responses to what is a housing crisis, instead of going for you know demanding public housing owned built by the state. They went for kind of a classic. There's a quest for respectability going on there, mm. isn't there? And you know, yeah, and clearly it's not working. No, it's not. It's not what people want. Um, well, I, th- I think one of the problems is that the the southern middle classes, number one, despise Sinn Féin. It's quite clear that they despise Sinn Féin. Um, and sections of the the southern middle classes will never vote for Sinn Féin. Well, not, not in our lifetime. And... Uh, oh, the, other, the other story there, sorry to interrupt, Sean, was that um, the Labour Party lost, I think, I, got, I don't know how many seats, they got 50 or 60... But they they lost eighty in two thousand fourteen. They only got six back. So as a, as a political force, they're they're showing no bounce back ability, as oh, yeah. we would say at all. So they, it looks like they're done, and they've lost a lot of their steam towards the Social Democrats and the Greens. So you, I know people are talking about now a new alliance or allegiance between the Social Democrats, the Greens, and Labour in the south of some sort of new left of centrist block. Um, uh, and Labour may have no choice but to join in with that because and hang on to the coattails of that Green surge and that Sock Dem surge. I don't know, I know, but. Uh, but that's also a threat to the left as well because that's pulling well, in loads of working class votes you know yeah that's what I wanted to I wanted to wrap up this discussion on, on Ireland um, around the, you know there have been a number of calls I've seen on social media calling for left unity what would be required to achieve left unity what would it look like well you need a time machine for a start go back to the 1920s or something you need to do in a couple of the early leaders of the Irish labour movement you need to make sure that Connolly wasn't executed and that Liam Mellows wasn't executed and start from there because this idea that this despair people have of the Irish left, I mean the Irish left's always been weak and historically I mean it's not, it's not a new thing is it? And from the 1920s onwards it's never really had a massive electoral presence. Our Labour movement was kind of captured by Christian Democrats you could argue and has never really had a, you know, kind of a soft, soft social democratic tinge the Marxist tradition in Irish has always been peripheral and weak um, 
and there's all huge historical reasons, which is a debate. It's, it's a discussion for another podcast about the, you know, the the lack of anti-clericalism on the Irish left and the church and Irish identity being wrapped up with Catholicism and that identity of Irishness and Gaelic Ireland, as opposed to a harder left red Marxist tradition. So we're dealing with that history, and you can't discount that history. You can't you can't be a historical when you're talking about the Irish left. So I don't despair. The only the only option is to build it. In terms of the fragmentation of the Irish left in the modern era, well, that's a debate you could have, like, you know, because it clearly isn't helping. I think you know? the cause for left unity are also putting the cart before the horse, and that it's mm. it's a very abstract call that that demands sacrifices in all parts um, without any real prospect of of advance. Um, so I I think maybe the better way to put it would be to frame left left unity around the issues upon which the left wing parties can can work on. Um mm. show they can work grass, together on a campaign. I mean even st- in Right to Water from there. and there was great work done Right to Water by the coordinators of that campaign. But it was like herd and cats at times and mm. there, there was damage done internally to the Right to Water campaign precisely by left parties trying to gut each other, even when you had the most popular social movement in the history of the state. So even when you had a really good vehicle for left unity, where you had tens of hundreds of thousands of people involved couldn't really even get it together with that. So what prospect is there of getting it together now or without another massive social movement like that? So that's the issue. So a lot of lot of people have to ask themselves a lot of questions, a lot of parties have to do a bit of soul searching about how they managed to do that. But um you're not my gonna, experience at Right to War was just it was it was people gutting each other constantly. You're not gonna, betraying each other's You're not gonna get the various left parties to agree on a common programme or electoral strategy or, or anything like that, just in the abstract. Um, but what you might get is most of those parties agreeing to work on a huge issue like housing or or, or climate change or whatever it might be, um, and you start from there um, and, and build towards the left unity as opposed to just calling for it. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is um, social change doesn't happen in an instant. It doesn't ha- have a moment. You know the the thing about the Northern Ireland civil rights um, campaigns was that it didn't start in 1969. Mm. There was years and years of agitation before that. Yeah. And when I was with Americans there last week, then somebody had made the point. Rosa Parks just didn't decide to sit on the bus one day. There right. had been years and years mm-hmm. of activist training. So that that's obviously what needs we need to get back to our roots. Okay, as you say, that's a subject for another um, podcast all on its own. Let's move across the water now to uh, Britain. Big gains for the Brexit party? Well, but yes and no, because, I mean, I know they're only six or seven weeks old as a party, but they've got near enough the same vote and the same seats as UKIP did in 2014, so it's really just a transfer from UKIP to the Brexit party. Uh, it's mm. that leave vote, it's that kind of right-wing leave vote that they represent. So, and that was absent from the analysis. So there hasn't been gains. That, that constituency just shifted. The, the party name's different, but the constituency yeah. is much the same, I suppose. Um, I think what's significant, and you know, there is some continuity in one in in one sense, uh, in that in that sense, the Stevie's outline. Um, I think what the the remarkable thing is that what you've seen is a party with no, and Richard Seymour's made this point. He's in a party with no membership base, um, no structures, no policies, um, uh, n- nothing beyond uh, a CEO and a couple of directors. Uh, no uh, massive PR campaign um, none of those things you've seen that t- 
take 33% of the vote. Um, so that's that's a big story on the one burning issue of today. The big story there, though, compared to 2014 in Britain, is, of course, is what happened to the Conservative Party, because they didn't do yeah. as badly in 2014, even though there was a large UK vote. This time, their vote was down to, was it, 9%? It collapsed, 9%. and someone, I think, you, Sean was telling me the other day, it was 1832, you know, was the last time they had a result that bad. I and mean, you're back to fucking Robert Peel and the, the Corn Law repeal here, you know what I mean, pre-famine time, so yeah. uh, that, that's historic, and great to see. Slap it up, the bastards, like, just any Tory... Loss is great to see, just for the just for the crack, if nothing else. But the political issue is what happens, of course, with the Tory party leadership, who gets it, whether there's going to be a general election, and then whether that Brexit machine, Brexit party machine, stands in those elections or not. That's mm. that's really the fascinating thing over the next couple of months, you know. Yeah. If they do stand, you know, you're regardless of who the Tory leader is, you're going to see a massive shift to the right on on the part of the. Uh, the Tories. I mean, pop, uh, that's what populist parties do. If they don't survive their sudden surg- resurgence, you know, like UKIP, and what they do is they change the mainstream. UKIP mm. did that by insisting upon this on the referendum in the first place. Yeah. Um, the anti-immigrant sentiment that even affected the Labour Party under Miliband, you know, that anti, that's still there. So what these populist parties do is change the nature of politics in the mainstream. That's their real success. Not even their electoral survival, perhaps changing the discourse, changing the debate, and that's their real danger, of course. And as Sean said, if, if Boris gets in or something, and he'll have to either do a deal with the Brexit party or out right wing the Brexit yeah. party, out fash the fascists, you know. So that's that's a, a real danger. Hmm. Yeah, Labour have been calling even before the the elections. Jeremy Corbyn has been um, calling for a general general election as a way of resolving the Brexit impasse. Um, but they're painted into a corner now too. Um, severe difficulties within the Labour. Uh, party, all of those um, old animosities starting to re-emerge. Uh, people like Tom Watson emboldened again, um, and of course Alistair Campbell expelled. Um, <laughs> Good enough for the bastards should have been expelled over Iraq, but there you yeah. go. So what, what about Labour? What what's the prospects? In uh, it's the, a difficult. It really is a difficult yeah. one for them, isn't it? For the in terms of calling for the general election, because even if. I mean, even if they call for a general election, they're going to be in difficulty having a majority anyway, regardless of what happens with Brexit Party and Tories and all that. But um, at best, they can hope for some sort of rainbow coalition post, post-general post election. But in terms of the pressure under now, it's, just, it's, it's, it's round two of Labour becoming a Remain party, a proper Remain party, isn't it? And they're under serious pressure to go down that route. But you know, you were saying this morning, Sean, that both sides are claiming victory in the Europeans and locals. Oh, you know, whereas in reality, every poll I've seen still has it at around 50-50 Remain versus Leave so if there's a second referendum however it's worded you're back to where we were in 2016 and what happens if Remain win, uh, if Leave win again which is which is a possibility you know so yeah, I don't know what, uh, yeah, Labour I think Labour what? played it quite cleverly over last year mm-hmm. trying to kind of sit on the fence a bit and ride because their party is split in two what, what else are they going to do? There's a, there's a tactical political and principled basis for Labour's position and that they're trying to unite. They have tried to unite people, not on the basis of their position uh, regarding Brexit, but around their class interests and around the Labour Party's program. Um, so they're, you know, you can see why they've done that. Um, the problem, the problem is, is that you know, our objective conditions have, and the sort of manoeuvring of the Labour right and opponents with outside the Labour Party um, have have worked against them. Um, 
It's whether, it's whether they can do, even in a general election scenario, it's whether the, the Brexit issue has become such an existential issue. It's almost like a cultural war now. It doesn't matter about policies, it doesn't matter about promises, it doesn't matter about future alternative economies that Labour might be promising in a radical manifesto. It's now about Brexit or yeah. not. So you could offer a, the most radical manifesto possible in that election and it would still be about Brexit. And that, that's the danger, I suppose, to, to their ability to win that election and present a kind of left social democratic programme, is it? It's not about it's about Brexit. So that's, that's a real danger to, to politics, actually, yeah. in that sense. Because you know? Labour does have the radical programme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in, in any other um, circumstances, we win a general election, but that's been pushed into the background as a result of the polarisation of society on, on that just one issue of, of Brexit. And the Labour right have clearly, have clearly shown that they'd rather have, be in Europe than have a Labour government. That seems to be what it's all about for them. Um, whether that's cynical and they just want to take control yeah. of their own party, I imagine it is, that's really what it's about, and they're willing to forego another five years of Conservative rule as long as they get their party back. Or whether it's some of them being generally wedded to the idea of the European Union as more important than national sovereignty and a national parliament. <clears throat> you know, that, that kind of thing. So that the EU debate is in there as well, I think. It's not just the cynicism of the right wing of the party. I think it's the way they're wedded to the concept of the future of this European Union. Okay. <coughs> um, were the Liberal Democrats written off too soon as well? Certainly the Lib Dems have benefited from uh, Labour's predicament and that they've they've taken uh, and, and the Tories' predicament that they've taken some remaining votes from from the two parties. Um, someone made a, an important point though that, that the Lib Dems historically have always done well in the European elections and um, haven't necessarily uh, surpassed what how they did in 2014 and 2009. So I wouldn't jump to big conclusions about the, the Lib Dems, about how they would necessarily perform in, in a general election or how they would do beyond uh, how they've done in the, in the Europeans. Unless, of course... If there's a general election that's run on the on the issue of Brexit issue rather of than Brexit. wider social policies, if it is, and it probably will be, if there is one, then they will do well because again, this has become an existential issue. Mm. This Brexit thing. So a lot of the people, or many of the people who voted Lib Dem and indeed Green, voted to remain in the European Union. That's what that vote was about. So if they carry that, if those people carry that same sentiment into a general election, they'll pick their party based on their position in the. Yeah, of course, the general elections are first past the post vote, which yeah. makes a difference in the way people vote as well. Mm. Um, can we move on to Europe? Um, what are the trends in Europe, or does it broadly reflect what's happened in Britain and Ireland? Kind of a mixed bag here. It wasn't that the, the, they were suggesting there was going to be a massive rise of the right. Now they didn't disappear by any means, and they won in Italy, Salvini and stuff. But they didn't do as well as they thought they would do. But mm. they have certainly um, kind of placed the marker down because they are there. You got Vox in Spain, ten percent. They're in there. Salvini in Italy. The whole of Eastern Europe, the right did really well. Fedez in Hungary won fucking fifty-six percent of the vote or something. A man under a man Orban. So the right are there and they're not going anywhere in in a hurry. So that's quite clear. There was a green surge in Europe as well, massive green surge in Europe. Um, we'll maybe talk a bit more about that. And the left kind of had a mixed picture. It wasn't all doom and gloom. It wasn't like the Irish left. I mean, the left did okay in some parts. They didn't really advance, but they certainly held their own. In Spain, it wasn't it was a mixed picture in Spain. The the, the PSOE kind of Claw back some of their lost votes, not that they're left party, I mean, but soft yeah. party. Neoliberal uh, yeah, soft depends how you interpret the left, left. But even on, on, on uh, in the, um, those kind of municipalist experiments that was happening in Madrid and Barcelona and stuff, Barcelona kind of 
Ada Calau and uh, Barcelona and Camus held out. They didn't win, but they kind of held their vote. Cadiz, really good results in Cadiz, where the um, United left of Podemos have nearly have nearly got a majority in that city. So there was at a local level, the left did really well actually in in Spain relative to the national level. So and that's that's largely to do and there's lessons to be had there about that municipalist experiment. You know, those initiatives of local government and very left wing local governments happening. So wasn't too bad, like Belgian Workers Party. That's um, the one picked up eight nine percent, and they stand in Wallonia and Flanders. So the only part of the do, I think, stand across Belgium. So they've done well. You know, they got I think they got one seat in the Europeans. Um, um, with the, with the green surge, then do you think we can add on a couple of years to the twelve year warning? Then <laughs> no, I don't actually. I mean, the Greens are a mixed bag too. I mean, it, it's it's great to see a green surge in that sense because you know that the public is concerned. I suppose so that's good, and you like to see that. Um, whether they're given their vote to the party that will actually do anything about it is another mm. matter. I mean, the European Greens and the European Green Bloc are kind of in a weird alliance with the European Free, all these little reasonless parties. They're not necessarily of the left. Um, French Greens are better, German Greens less so. Mm. The German Greens picked up 27 seats or something like that. They're, they came second behind Merkel, mm. I'm saying that. Mm. But I wouldn't, you know. Well, the only thing you can hope for is that young people who, if they're going to go green, if they're going to vote and join these parties, is they radicalise them from the inside out because some of those green parties are, are not of the left and they have dodgy policies. And um, the very fact they're in that block with those kind of they're in a block with like the Corsican nationalists and the SNP and you know left Republicans from Catalonia and and, and um, I don't you know I mean the, one of the former leaders of the Greens in Europe, um, Daniel. Cohen Bendit is, you know, he's part of that Spinelli group in the European Union, which is a radical federalist group that wants to see, you know, increased federalisation, integration in Europe. And the Greens used to be back in the seventies and eighties all about regional democracy and breaking down big institutions. Now they've kind of lumped it in with that. So um, I'd be a bit concerned about, you know, people putting all their faith in, not in green parties, but in that green movement. You know. Yeah. Yeah. For some have sort of heralded the the growth of the Greens and the Liberals in Europe as the birth of a new politics. Um, now there's health warning to come with that and the Stevie's outline much of it. Um, the Green movement is, is unevenly divided between the dominant centrist parliamentary uh, tradition mm. and uh, a sort of radical undercurrent um, that's responsible for or that has been well, is responsible for and has benefited from a new environmental consciousness. You know, the mm. extinct, extinct rebellion and and school the, strike the school and so strike and and all of that sort of thing. Like, um, so, whether it does represent the birth of a new politics is dependent upon whether that grassroots sort of radicalism, that eco-socialism, mm. wins out. Um, and forces the hand of of the parliamentary party. But you have to remember, um, I mean, in, in Gui and Gel, in the left bloc in, in in Europe, you have the likes of the Red Green Alliance from Denmark, which is an eco socialist party, but it's mm. in the left bloc. Whereas a lot of the mainstream Green parties are in this kind of centrist yeah. bloc, which is not radical, which is not anti capitalist. Although the French Greens kind of are, it depends which tradition you go with. The French Greens would be a bit more anti capitalist. They recognise that capitalism is killing the planet, therefore you can't stand capitalism. The other mainstream Greens don't don't seem to have got that yet. Um, so it depends which tradition uh, wins out, I suppose. You know, whether you're going to have a left-green alliances or whether mm. you're going to have this green, liberal, basically pro-capitalist alliance emerging. I mean, that, I was reading only the other day about that Spinelli group. I mean, Guy Verhofstadt set it up. And the bloke that backed the yeah. coup against Maduro. 
and the Greens are so a lot of the Greens senior leadership are in that Spinelli group with him. So what does that tell you? Yeah, you know, you so shall be no, you shall be known by your friends. Yeah. So for this green surge to to move in the sort of transformative direction that it needs to, um, you need an escalation of grassroots activity, trade union interventions, which are few and far between, red green alliances, um, mm. all of this sort of stuff, or else what you might see is just the the outcome will be uh, greenwashing. Uh, yeah. Well, it'll just be a renewal of centrism of third way politics with a technocratic green tinge. Um, the other danger um, is that whilst people are celebrating the growth of the Liberals across Europe, the Liberal Party, of course, or the Liberal bloc, of course, includes um, parties like Macron's um, and others that are the, were the clothes of, of the right in terms of authoritarianism, anti-immigrant sentiment, neo, neoliberal policies, anti-worker policies, and so on. Um, so you could possibly see another form of centrist renewal but with a right wing authoritarian neoliberal tinge. Um, I shouldn't get too carried away either with the green surge because I mean in France I mean, they've renamed themselves now haven't they? National Rally Rassemblement or whatever they're called but they, they won they beat Macron. Now there's an issue there about the, the Gilets Jaunes who they're voting for they're clearly voting for the National Front or a lot of them are anyway because they can't beat Macron so and that's uh, that's a concern as well, you know. And so again, as I said before, Salvini in, in Italy topping the poll, and the left in Italy nowhere to be seen, really. Mm. Um, so there are, you know, it's, it's not. I wouldn't put all my faith in the green surge, and as Sean said, red green alliances is the only way forward from this point on. But the, and the trade union movement in Europe has got some serious thinking to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the subject of another podcast mm. as well, isn't it? Um, right. Thanks very much, lads, for your contributions, and um, we'll draw this conversation to a close. Hope that's cleared things up for people and we'll see you on the next one. Slangafoil.